Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon. Uh, this is Craig Settles. Um, COVID-19 has dramatically exposed how digital inequities further marginalize minority communities. Um, the good news has been how quickly uh, and easy Congress has and the uh, federal agencies that fund much of the broadband grants have hurried to put um, emergency programs into place for both broadband and telehealth. Uh, the bad news, though, is that some of these uh, funding programs have not been equally distributed between rural and communities uh, from the urban side. Uh, the FCC's Emergency Relief Fund for Telehealth, for example, uh, was fairly evenly distributed between rural and urban communities, but at the same time, the FCC's mostly urban subsidiary program has been continually reduced over the past um, few years. My guest today on Gigabit Nation, who will discuss some of the issues with funding parity, is Frantella Okilo, who is the executive director for uh, uh, Next Century Cities. Frantella, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Craig, for having me. And just to point out, it's Frantella. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. I'm uh, oh, not to worry. Not to worry. People mess up my name all the time. So, Francella Ochillo, but I'm really excited to be with you guys today and just to talk about, um, you know, digital access is something that's near and dear to my heart. Excellent. Um, and, yes, we've talked before, so obviously, you know, I am very familiar with your uh, experiences, but uh, can you describe a little bit what Next Century, uh, Next Century Cities does Yes. So Next Century Cities is a nonprofit. We are a 501c3 organization based here in Washington, D.C., and we essentially support local efforts to expand broadband connectivity in communities across the U.S. So we have over 200 members in communities that span all the way from Hawaii to Maine. Um, They are varying not only geographies, but also um, demographics. And so um, some of our uh, communities are at various uh, parts of the journey. So some have really robust networks. Others are just getting started to come up with solutions. Um, But all of them are committed to make sure that every single one of their residents can take advantage of digital opportunities. Coolness, and uh, you've been doing this for well. The this um, next century cities, it's been has been a year. Or it's been two years. I forget. No, well, actually, you've been... next century cities has just celebrated our five year anniversary. So, um, wow. but I have only been at next century cities for the, just over a year. So you're right, talking about okay. my anniversary, not next century cities. <laughs> I didn't realize that they had been at. At it for so while, uh, for so long, because they've been there, you know, been in the news and and creating news, you know, for for a while now. But uh, and it's great, um, you know, to to have you on board with this. So now, one of the things, sort of a historical fact, um, in I would say from 2005 up until 2008, right, when we talked about when people would talk about uh, broadband and the lack of broadband and so forth, um, people generally talked about both the urban and the rural areas as having a, a big need for broadband. But somewhere in there around, I don't know, 2008, 
um, we started talking about uh, less about um, the urban need and focusing heavily on the rural. Um, do you have any just a general idea of, of how or why this has you know has transpired? I mean, how did we get moved from you know sort of looking at the whole picture? Just saying, well, the only thing we need to worry about is um, the urban area. I'm sorry, is the rural areas because the urban areas are fine. Yeah, um, I think that talking about urban versus rural, it's just uh, it's an aside to the conversation because the truth is that it doesn't matter if you're in you know uh, Appalachian communities in Ohio or in the center of Cleveland. If you're disconnected, you're still frustrated, you're mm-hmm. still struggling, you're still exactly. worried about your family's opportunities, your own economic opportunities. So I think that, you know, if we're to be really candid here, um, focusing on urban versus rural is sometimes to accommodate uh, political wins. And I think that, quite frankly, it ends up uh, putting an undue focus on access in one area, whereas in urban communities that might have uh, the infrastructure nearby, um, but the, the households can't actually connect, we then have an adoption problem. And each of them are problematic. <laughs> they're both insidious. They're both, you know, have residual effects not only on that household community at large. And so when we're really talking about who's disconnected, and especially um, as COVID has exposed um, a lot of households that wouldn't have necessarily had a voice in this conversation, we have been, you know, confronted with these illustrations of people who are disconnected on tribal lands, um, in hard-to-reach uh, places, in uh, urban communities, whether you're in the Bronx and don't have infrastructure or you're in Rochester and don't have the equipment. I mean, the truth is that it, it, it's all of it's a problem. But at the same time, I don't want it to seem so enormous that we can't come up with solutions together. What I think is that Mm -hmm. it's really important for us to get rid of this idea of urban versus rural and really to think about what does it cost us as a society when we have large populations of people who cannot contribute to a digital ecosystem because then it's everyone's problem. Right. Uh, I agree. As, As a matter of fact, I had a conversation earlier today uh, with the gentleman who's um, heading a project um, for on behalf of uh, Land of Lake, which is one of those uh, dairy um, products uh, companies. And they yes. uh, were in the news I gave a couple of weeks ago about their um, advocacy for connecting people, basically. Uh, and, you know, as rural mm-hmm. in the sense that um, a lot of their company's business comes from uh, the rural community or they're, you know, where they're placed, they're in a, uh, a rural area. But as we talked, he and I uh, earlier today, you know, we, we came up with, you know, it is an issue for connectivity. It's not really a, a rural urban divide. And really what we just need to be looking at is, um, are we putting all that, as many resources as possible to resolve the connection problem? And I think that, uh, you know, in – sorry, I'll let you go. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I, I actually agree wholeheartedly with you. I think that the truth is that we really have to think about how we talk about these problems is also how we fund the solutions, right? Because if we uh, only yes. talk about the rural 
you know, communities that are disconnected, then most of the funding solutions are going to go to rural communities. It's, it's natural progression of the problem-solving conversation, right? So the thing is, mm-hmm, now mm-hmm. we need to be really authentic about who's disconnected. And so it's not only rural communities, because I wholeheartedly agree that I don't want to be disconnected in some, like, Lost Hills, California, and feel like I have to go to the neighboring town to use a library internet connection. That's not helpful. So the thing is, mm-hmm. let's really talk about it in pieces, talking about who are we trying to help? How are we trying to diagnose problems? Who do we actually need support from? So is it that we're asking the government for help? Is it that we're saying we need public-private partnerships to help solve this problem? I personally think we need all of those things. Um, but I think that mm-hmm. it helps us when we really acknowledge, like, what's at the core of the issue. It helps us be a little bit more targeted and effective in crafting solutions. Right. I, I definitely agree. Now, one of the things you just mentioned um, – uh, reminded me uh, when I first got into the business of uh, community broadband, and I wrote a book on uh, Philadelphia's project, right? And they were um, uh, deciding they wanted to do a citywide wireless uh, uh, Wi-Fi uh, deployment, right? And one of the people I talked to, he said, you know, there's two ways that you can look at projects, right? Uh, when it, when it comes to to the government, right? Yeah, you can look at it as a problem-solving exercise where you basically focus on this one little spectrum of thing, of a problem, and uh, and you're trying to resolve it. And then once it's done, you just kind of go, okay, that's done, next. And then the, the, they don't really think much more about the situation, right? But he goes, the, the bigger, better approach is what he called the um, the creative uh, approach, you know, the the ability to create something which is bigger and better than what is in place currently. And with that um, creation narrative, you're able to create wonderful things that, that can happen and that you may not have been able to, to see if you were just looking at, I got this problem, I got to fix this problem now. And when I'm done, I'm done. Yeah. Right. I, I I haven't run into that, but tell me, doesn't that make sense? Oh, completely. I, I think that it's, you know, we have to think about this as not only going into communities that are disconnected to actually bring the infrastructure. Then the next part might be thinking about what are the community partnerships that we need to support ongoing uh, literacy training, uh, digital, making sure that they have access to digital tools, uh, uh, problem solving, especially when maybe the network needs repair or, or there's something that needs upgrading. Who's going to be responsible for doing that? Who's training those people? How do we attract them to stay in those communities? Like, this is a problems that we're trying to solve in a continuum. So it can't be that we just uh, say, okay, well, this community is connected, so we move on to the next one. I think that, quite frankly, even if once everyone gets the baseline connectivity, that's not going to be enough because it may take a few years for everyone to get the baseline, and then we're going to move far beyond where we are right now. Because even think Mm -hmm. about, you know, I I think about how many different uh, versions of a cell phone you've had. And if you really think about the cell phone that you had in your pocket 10 10 years ago, and if you compare it to the one that you have right now, that is an actual visual where you might have had a sidekick, uh, you could have had a BlackBerry, whatever it was. 
and maybe mm-hmm. you've moved on to the latest iteration of an iPhone. The point is the technology constantly changes and evolves and gives us more options. So the thing is, it's not enough to make sure that we connected them to a BlackBerry. We have to make sure that they actually know how to contribute on a different iteration of a phone. And so mm-hmm. I just think that we have to think about this in a continuum because otherwise our, our work wouldn't be um, adequate. It wouldn't really be serving the community. And quite frankly, it would be doing a disservice to the populations who really need our support. Right. And I, I you know, definitely agree with that. And I, I do want to ask a question about <clears throat> sort of the where we are, not, not so much as a, uh, you know, to go into a launch about what the solution is per se, but, um, you know, just get understand our baseline and then we figure out, well, what are we going to try to create is sort of like the next part of this discussion between, between the two of us. But um, so, so now when you look at um, the, con- the issue of connectivity, is it different between uh, rural areas and urban areas? Well, obviously the, the geography is different because it is going to be more expensive to go and bring wireline to a community where the houses might be, you know, half a mile apart as opposed to being able to wire maybe an apartment building in downtown San Francisco. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, the dollars and cents of that, I, I get it. It might end up costing you, you know, $50 per household if you're in an urban area versus $2,000 per household in a, an area where the houses are far apart. So I, I take that point, right? But at this point, mm-hmm. we can no longer rely on the business case to get to those communities because the point is if, it, if there's no business case to attract people from the outside, providers from the outside, investors, things like that, then what we need to do is to arm communities with the ability to do it for themselves. And so whether yep. that means they come up with wireless solutions, they come up with partnerships, like whatever that looks like, because the truth is that what we can't do is say it's a problem and then hamstring communities' ability to solve it for themselves. And so I think that our job is to make sure that they know about what options are available to them. They're aware of the possibilities for partnerships, that they have supportive uh, government um, structures and regulations, and also the political will to actually say, to bless those processes. And so, um, and to really, as much as we talk very often about you know, deregulating for companies, then it's like, okay, well, let's do the same for communities and make sure that they have options to solve problems for themselves. And so, Mm -hmm. um, you know, sometimes that's going to be a mixed network. Um, Sometimes that's going to be a totally private network where they can get providers to come into town. And for some communities that are just hard to reach and aren't able to get private investment, that's going to be a municipal network option. So, uh, you know, at Next Century Cities, we don't endorse one over the other. You sh- communities should be able to choose which solution is uh, couture for their population. But, you know, what is important is that people actually have the opportunity to choose. And when right. you're thinking about once they choose, what kind of support do they need? That's going to be support from the state from federal government, from Congress, uh, from the, you know, the, the for-profit organizations that reside in their communities. This is an all-hands-on-deck problem. Right. Now, one of the things I will say, and it may be a little bit, you know, political, but at the local level, and I have talked to people in a variety of, you know, we'll call blue states and uh, red states and all of that, at the local level, most people decide that it is, like you just described, all hands on deck. 
And as I look at, you know, the landscape, you know, we seem to have um, an issue where um, the state legislatures kind of get in the way by, by, by saying, well, we can't have city run or that we can't have a uh, co-op run, right? And I just find that this to be um, uh, contrary to solving a problem or creating something spectacular uh, than, than, than anything else. I mean, I, I've heard uh, from, what is it, a couple of days, a couple of weeks ago that some legislators are trying to ban municipal um, uh, broadband in the state of Ohio, right? And the state of Ohio has some really good examples of the ver- a ver- a variety of different models for broadband, right? And is it time to maybe someone to say, you know, um, at the state le- at the state legislative level, we need to back off and let these people find their best solution. And maybe there's so are, you there know, are, are two parts. Oh, there are two parts of that question that I'd like to address in a very bipartisan okay. way, because you're not going to get me in trouble here. So no, no, um, we're a bipartisan organization, and I realized that right. um, you know when you framed it as they're red and blue states and different people, uh, I know that that's a problem that's you know it, it's not unique to Ohio. It's uh, that problem has been um, widely reported in places like you know North Carolina, Tennessee. Uh, I think. Um, Virginia, Montana, like there are lots of examples where states have, uh, whether it's, you know, a full-throated block or have regulations in place that hamstring, uh, whether it's, you know, intentional or or unwittingly. The point is that actually slow down communities' abilities to essentially create their own networks. Um, I think that if we're really, like, honest about this problem. It, it's not just about, oh, there's a, there's a law or regulation on the books, okay? There's money at play here. And I, mm. I feel like I'm, I'm trying to step lightly around talking about that, but I mm-hmm. think that it's, it's real. It's a fact. It's something that um, does influence whether or not residents are able to uh, seek, you know, solutions. It's just a reality. And I think that mm-hmm. that's part of where sometimes the, you know, whether it's um, pro- providers that don't want solutions that encroach on their ability to generate profits, or um, maybe there are territories that it's like this area isn't profitable this year, but maybe five years out it might be profitable and we don't want to give up dibs. Like there are lots of ways <laughs> that something that starts out as, you know, uh, hold on a second, this might interfere with revenue, trickles down to, you know, a community is altogether blocked. There's a lot of steps Mm -hmm. in between there. But the truth is we wouldn't be being honest if we didn't acknowledge that there's there's money involved, okay? And so the thing is, Mm -hmm. I don't think that money is the reason that those regulations are in place, but I do think that there is money funding them staying in place in certain places because it is a threat to current models, And so Mm -hmm. what COVID has showed us is that we can talk all day long about preserving um, 
potential profits, and uh, we can talk about like why some of those things are those regulations are in place. But the reality is that doesn't solve the problem, and it also doesn't help undo the harm to not only the households, the local economy, and the state economy when you have large populations of people who can't get online because it's not only an issue about them being able to access the digital ecosystem and then a second step being them being able to contribute to it, whether it's them creating, starting a small business, uh, you know, supporting other businesses, uh, contributing art, you know, whatever it is that they're contributing. But the other step is this is also about being able to keep residents in your area. It's a population issue because the places mm-hmm. that are unable to keep people connected are going to find it more and more difficult to keep residents there to age in place. And so as we become a society that has less geographic borders where, you know, uh, you know maybe 50 years ago you probably lived nearby uh, the community that you were born in or maybe that you had large family ties, and here we are in 2020 where people might have been willing to, oh, I'm going to take a job cross-country. It's no big deal. I'll keep in touch with family online. The truth is that, like, we, we don't have those same geographic borders. So the thing is you need to be able to offer residents the option to connect with people outside of your community. And so I right. think that, you know, it, it, it's an issue where I feel like we can talk about this about preserving rights for these territorial rights and, you know, the power structures in some of these markets, and and also which leads to why some of those markets are monopoly and duopoly markets. Let's be honest about that. Um, But it's Mm -hmm. kind of like, in the end, does it it help? I, I don't think so. And I think that we need to really think carefully about if those models aren't working for either community or the state, like if they're just not working, then what are we doing to remedy that? And I would think that, you know, there are smart people across this nation that could brainstorm ideas that not only accommodate companies that do need to generate a profit, but that also support the need to connect residents in every community. Mm-hmm. Well, definitely, uh, you know, makes a difference, uh, you know, with the mindset and I mean, it's, I think it's real. I mean, you have to recognize again the, the 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 profit motive and so forth and so on. Um, I think that uh, hopefully, uh, you know, the, that the sort of bipartisanness at the local level will just continually to roll up to the the state level, and then you know we should be we should be fine. Now in um, in some of the discussions about uh, urban uh, versus rural, I think we tend to break things down to, oh, the urban areas have an issue with uh, adoption. Half the time, I mean, well, the comments I get are, you know, well, people aren't really interested or they don't have, you know, they don't see a value. Um, Of course, I will say that many of those comments happened before covid so I don't know if, if people would even make that mm-hmm. comment now, but it seems yeah. to be part of the, um, you know, where we got to where we got to uh, is the urban area, is, is the area, is, is the issue of um, connectivity or the lack thereof, is it an adoption issue or is there a lot to say it is a, you know, technology not being in place issue? 
Mm-hmm. Well, I think that the issue about infrastructure is going to be ongoing because, um, you know, even for communities that have uh, uh, some sort of wireline infrastructure, uh, it's going to be, you know, 10 years from now, it's going to be, well, do you have this type of cable? Do you have fiber? Do you, have, you know, there's always going to be upgrades to networks, what's faster, what's better. And, you know, we're all, we should always be thinking about ways to future-proof how we're building those networks. So I think that, mm-hmm. you know, um, obviously wireline connections tend to be the most reliable. And, um, of course, wireless uh, networks are, um, you know, helpful, especially in communities that the wireline is just not going to be um, a reality anytime soon. Um, but mm-hmm. when we're thinking about is it an infrastructure issue in urban communities, I think that there are going to be some communities where there is explicit, you know, redlining um, for, for various reasons. Um, they just don't have the infrastructure that they need to expand the networks in the way that they would want to. Um, good examples of that, you'll see uh, Detroit, New York City. Um, you know, there are several places where it's like it's very explicit. You know, um, we know it's documented in certain neighborhoods. Wiring is essentially around, the, the infrastructure is actually around those neighborhoods. Um, Mm -hmm. but the adoption issue is something we just can't run from, right? I think that when you mentioned, you know, you know, you made a comment, I don't think somebody would think, you know, the way that they used to before COVID. Um, you know, I have to point out that, uh, two months ago I was working on a conference in coalition with some other advocates. And when I made the comment, uh, when we were going back and forth on a Google doc, that communities that don't have digital access are locked out of opportunities. Uh, I got a comment from one of the groups that actually said, uh, we don't know if that's proven yet, that it was a sweeping statement and that we should remove it. And, Hmm. you know, it's like, I don't want to assume everybody uh, is, is in the mindset that we need to treat this something that is urgent. It is something that everyone needs to be a part of the solution. I don't want to make those assumptions because I don't, I don't think everybody's in that place. Um, but what I do think is that we're in a day of reckoning where it made people uncomfortable to know it was in their neighborhood. It's like if you heard about the digital divide, but it wasn't, you know, it was like, but it, but it wasn't somebody in your neighborhood. It wasn't, it wasn't the, the students in your kid's class. It wasn't, it wasn't mm, yours, mm-hmm. right? Because a lot of the people who work on these issues are connected in many different ways. And so it's really a theoretical problem rather than something that they have to be intimate with. A lot, I, I mean, I, I would venture to say a lot of the people who work as advocates, um, you know, don't necessarily have to struggle every day to think about, oh, where am I going to connect today? What parking lot am I going to go to? We have the luxury of being able to either get on a phone or an iPad or a laptop. So the problem is mm-hmm. a little bit, you're, you're kind of like one step away from it. So when you get closer to that, the adoption becomes more and more important. Because then you start asking questions about, well, hold on a second. If the service is available in this neighborhood, why aren't they maintaining a subscription? And I thought that, you know, uh, one of the first reports I remember I saw on that years ago in Digital Denied, um, a report that came out from Derek Turner at Free Press, and he pointed out that, you know, very often uh, low-income families might sign up for a service and then it, as, you know, as the promotions expire, that service might be interrupted. And it's something that 
was a point that was not lost on me. I mean, like, I mean, like I have family members that could attest to that, but Mm -hmm. the truth Mm -hmm. is that it's like, when you really get closer and closer to it, asking questions about, can you afford it? Could you afford to not only get a subscription, but to keep it? Then do you have the tools that you need to actually use your subscription, whether that's a phone, a laptop, iPad, do you have something that works in an ongoing way? And then even after you get it, do you have the digital literacy to be able to navigate that device? And so to really think about how do I use my privacy settings? How do I sign up for this? Like beyond I signed up for my bank account, email account, like beyond the basics, but to really use it, can I create something with it? You know, can I, can I, you know, do something beyond the basics? And so I just think all of those questions about adoption, the closer you get to that issue, really like peeling back, hold on a second, why are these large populations of people not able to actually, you know, maintain subscriptions, that affordability piece and the digital tools piece and the digital literacy piece become inextricably tied to the whole conversation about access. Mm-hmm. Now, how much um, time and money, or maybe money, should the <laughs> government put in to digital literacy training, you know, all those things that often are not covered in these grant proposals. It's basically, you know, build build the network. That's all you got to work. Just get it done. Get the, you know, and that's fine. But it seems like um, if you don't have those elements of uh, training and digital literacy and so forth, how you know, haven't you wasted your uh, a certain amount of your money? You know, if I'm looking at it from a objective, um, you know, measure of the the worth of the investment, right? It's like saying if I spent fifty million dollars to build an infrastructure, yet I put zero into teaching people how to use the infrastructure, um, haven't I, uh, you know, failed to get the the full benefit of the investment. Well, you know, I think of it as like, it's like if you buy the smart TV versus, you know, the baseline video insignia or whatever, you're like, oh, mm-hmm. I have this really cool Samsung and it has all these bells and whistles. And I know that it can connect to Hulu, Netflix, you know, Roku. It's got all these amazing apps, but I don't have the remote control or, or I don't know how to get to it. Right. You paid uh-huh. much more and you don't know how to use all the good stuff, the bells and whistles that came with it. And I think that we have to really think about when we're setting up that type of funding, the, the way that that TV would be most helpful to you is if someone in your network could show you how to use it. And your network mm. doesn't necessarily have to be – you might get on YouTube. You might, you might call a, a, you know, a friend, a family member to walk you through mm-hmm. it. But somebody that you trust, right? Somebody with some sort of right. rapport. Right. And so Mm -hmm. that's the part where I feel like let's not throw out the basics that we would apply in any other circumstance from when we're actually (laughs) thinking about how to fund broadband solutions. Right. You're going to reach out Mm -hmm. to make sure that people in those communities can partner to make sure that those investments are worthwhile, long lasting, far reaching and get into the households that you're trying to reach. Right. So mm-hmm. I think that it doesn't really make sense for us to fund getting wires to a community and to say, OK, great, the wires got to the front of your neighborhood. But now what do we need to do to make sure that everybody in the neighborhood could connect to the network? And so 
you know, that's going to be where do we partner with whether it's local um, advocates, anchor institutions, whether it's librarians, um, you know, educators, um, digital stewards and communities. That's like one of the most beautiful things. I remember when I went to the Allied Media Conference in Detroit, it was the first time that I learned about the Detroit Community Technology Pro, um, Project that was actually replicated um, in the Bronx in New York. And it was this, you know, community that was essentially built with love because they actually said, we're going to go and be digital ambassadors and connect all of these households who have never had access to the Internet. And so they trained everyday people in the community to go knock on doors and introduce people on the wrong side of the digital divide to digital opportunities. Mm -hmm. And so that type of programming, that's something that they erected with love. That didn't take, mm -hmm. um, you know, some sort of government mandate. That was people in a community linking arms saying, we need this. And it really got supported by philanthropic support. And so I use that example just to show this isn't always going to be a government solution, but we do need governments to partner with local officials and community institutions. And so mm -hmm. I think that we're going to be able to get new ideas about how to do this. Um, I don't think that any one will suit, you know, every community, but I do think we need to be in an ongoing dialogue to actually elicit the talent, the trust, the resources that already exist in a community to tap into that, to make sure that those investments are actually as far reaching as we envision them when we're actually outlining the funding on this end. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the, uh, uh, I space for a second. Uh, oh, wow. There was uh, the, we started to talk about, um, uh, you know, the, the uh, problem-solving approach or the creation approach, right? Um, one of the things I have seen and heard uh, from people is that, um, you know, I built the network and I keep the network running, and that's about it. I don't want to worry about what applications are there. I don't really care about telehealth uh, and so forth. Now, I had um, an interview with uh, the person who did or was part of the program where Chattanooga um, uh, got some money mm -hmm. or is getting some money, hopefully, from the uh, for, for telehealth, right? And I asked them the question. I said, you know, does it make sense? to uh for the builder right you know whether you have a team or a steering committee whatever is it make does it make sense to um really care about all the other stuff that can be done with the network rather than to say i built it it's not i mean we i know we talked about it earlier but you know um is, is this an issue i mean should there be a mindset among the the building team for the broadband projects, um, mm -hmm. more concern for other stuff that's happening on the network. Well, you're hinting at something that comes up very often in um, groups that focus on why, uh, I don't want to say that they oppose, they don't favor municipal networks because they believe that innovation comes from private investment and private um, essentially, the governments aren't necessarily designed to be uh, innovative, imaginative, 
And so Mm -hmm. if a a government runs the network, then it will essentially, even if it meets the minimum specs at inception, it will not be a network that continues to thrive or evolve or um, just get better, right? And so Mm -hmm. to that, um, very often, I, I think for me, I mean, I think that that means that, well, maybe we need to reimagine who's solving those problems and who's in the room, right? Because if we can mm-hmm. find ways to attract talent and um, to have ongoing partnerships in those communities, then maybe that talent can push local governments to do better. And in the meantime, the local government has provided an, a, a connectivity solution for residents that were still waiting. So I think this mm-hmm. idea that we can only have these networks that are innovative and that really perform, um, I think that that idea is, it's kind of, I I just don't necessarily buy into that um, because I Mm -hmm. think that, you know, I I know that our government isn't known for being um, forward thinking. And I know that sometimes projects take a long time um, to get through the pipeline. I mean, speaking to someone who you know, uh, when I was at DOJ, we were working on um, investigations uh, that were five years away from the actual original fraud. So I, I get that sometimes in government, things move slowly. What I do think is that this problem has introduced a new sense of urgency and a new will where I think for the first time we have the interest from various members of Congress uh, we have an acknowledgement from the FCC that we need to do better on data. We have um, an acknowledgement from states to say, if we don't figure out a way to do this, it's not only going to affect our, our, uh, our uh, economies, but also our population. And even at the local level, where they're saying our revenues are, are, you know, we're essentially in places where we're cutting every single part of our budget. And so this is something that can create new opportunities, not only for jobs, but also making sure that people stay connected. And so when we have that type of universal consensus, like we all need to own a part of this problem, I do think that it puts this in a different light and it opens Mm -hmm. up the door to new opportunities that even if, a local government is to either create a network, a partner to do um, an open source network, whatever flavor you like. The point is we need to come up with options so that we don't have groups of people essentially waiting in silence because that is something that hurts everybody. Mm-hmm. And I, who did I talk to? I, I, I've talked to some, this woman actually was from a, another country she's been in the u.s maybe four or five years and she got a job where she was uh, assessing um uh broadband uh, deployments and uh one of the things that she was found interesting was that policymakers tend to not talk to the people who actually have the problem Right. So, and she was what she was describing is, you know, there 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 be a state policy person or a uh, federal uh, policymaker, right? And they will meet among themselves about whatever the problem happens to be. But she says it seems like there's a certain like this a loftiness of you know the 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 poor 
person, the, uh, the, the, the low income, the person who uh, has English as a second language, right? That, that these folks, we don't value their input that, because they can't possibly solve any of these complex problems. And whereas her approach was, you know, I'd like to talk to uh, the low-income folks, the people who, um, you know, are challenged for various uh, necessities and so forth, because she says, um, because those folks are very creative because they've had to be all their lives. And so you will find some of the more interesting um, solutions to problems um, by are created by folks who have always had to do that or to, to survive. And so why not have those people at the table? Uh, what's your thought on that, you know, that inclusiveness of the people who actually, you know, own the problem of one sort or another? So, well, one thing you couldn't have known about me before this interview is that um, I'm first-generation American, um, my parents are from Kenya and Antigua. Um, I actually have very few relatives in the United States, and I'm the first one in my uh-huh. family born in the United States. And so this idea about who gets to solve problems um, and having uh, certain people in the room is not unique to the United States. It happens in lots of different places. <laughs> okay. One thing I think is interesting in the U.S. is that it's this place where, you know, you can be anything with hard work if you get the right opportunities. Sometimes it's a combination of hard work and, and luck. Um, but I do think that there's, um, when you're in that race, um, there are always going to be uh, certain people that, are, that start off um, a little bit um, further ahead of you on the track and that get a little bit more um, wind in their sails, right? And so the thing is, mm-hmm. in the United States, you can be in the race in a way that, um, if I were in Nairobi trying to have this conversation right now, there would be very specific obstacles for me to get into the room to develop policy. And so that is definitely a plus for the U.S. Um, however, when we're talking about who's solving this issue here, I do think that there's a premium placed on the, whether it is the um, policymakers, uh, lawmakers, regulators, advocates that have a certain pedigree. The point is that we're saying, well, I'm studied in this issue. I worked at the right organizations. I was appointed by the right people. I was elected. I was, you know, X, Y, and Z, right? And Mm -hmm. we might be solving an issue for low-income people, but no one thought to bring someone who's low-income into the room. (laughs) And so it ends up being really strange. It's this very strange, you know, it's a very strange problem-solving table because you're there like, okay, so let's take, for example, Lifeline. You know, it's like thinking about how many lifeline advocates that have taken a strong position, either for or against it, doesn't matter, you choose. And how many of them have actually met a lifeline subscriber? And I could literally count the people in the room that he'd even met one, let alone spoken with them. And so (laughs) it's hard sometimes when for me, as just a, a person who, you know, I've only been in tech policy for five years, this is new. Um, compared to some of the other people who have a really long tenure. Um, so I am constantly learning. Um, but at the same time, just basic, you know, things that would apply, you know, in any other place, you're thinking, well, that wouldn't really make sense. Like if we're going to like, you know, learn how to cook, we want to 
involve people who are chefs, right? So yep. it's like sometimes I think sometimes the basic problem-solving principles that would apply in any other circumstance sometimes don't always apply when we are doing tech policy solutions because there's this mm. idea that there's, you know, that your credentials, your experience are the things that are able for you, that enable you to craft solutions that are superior to people who have lived the experience. And I think that mm-hmm. if we start elevating the voices of the people who have lived the experience, that will also change our metrics as to what does it cost and what is the return on us going into those communities? Because mm-hmm. if I can bring that a little bit closer to you and make you empathize just a touch more with where they are, what are they struggling with, why is this scary for them, how can we create new options, I think that that sense of humanity is something that we, it might not show up on a balance sheet, but it cannot be eliminated from our formula. And so mm-hmm. that's the part that sometimes, you know, I hope to bring to tech policy. I think that sometimes, you know, we need to be human and realize, like, what does that look like? What does it feel like? What is the, the you know, the equal frustrations? It doesn't matter if you're in, you know, some, you know, you're stuck on a farm in Lost Hills, California, or if you're in the middle of Miami, Florida, it still sucks if you can't get online. It's still frustrating. It's still scary. It still limits your options. It limits your movement. I mean, those, those are shared. And so that's why sometimes I think we just need to get back to the basics of talking about if this is a problem that we are all committed to solve. And if we can acknowledge uh-huh. that even though I am connected, there is still a cost, a societal cost, when large populations are not connected, then I think it will change how we develop solutions. Mm-hmm. So now, somewhat, somewhat in the same vein, right? I have um, had this feeling for a while that instead of having a subsidy for folks who are uh, low income, right, which is what the Lifeline program is, right? Now we have a um, uh, there is a bill among many uh, to to look at raising that to like maybe fifty bucks a month, right? Because I mean, what can you get for for ten dollars a month for anything related to broadband, right? But I sort of look at this and go, would it be better to rather than have one person go find a someone who takes their subsidy from and then they would get a contract uh, you know to to have broadband why not take that money pull it and and then create a solution you know often it'll be you know maybe broadband uh wireless broadband what have you but rather than um I guess going in the old fashioned way of here, go take your fifty bucks and get the best that you can, pull this money, have the community figure out what they want and who they want it from, and let them negotiate the deal, right? Because it just to me it seems like it makes more sense. But I may be in far left field. What's your thoughts? 
So my thoughts on the subsidies, it's, it's mixed because, you know, I feel like the truth is Lifeline is a program that's in place and the only federal telecommunications program that's in place to help uh, low-income uh, households. And mm-hmm. it took a really long time to erect that program. Um, it takes a that very long time to develop uh, government funds. And quite frankly, it is a vehicle that's in place. Now, mm-hmm. it has been politicized. It has been, um, you know, uh, branded with really ugly names. And quite frankly, the program is underutilized in approximately 33% of the eligible population. So there are a lot of mm-hmm. issues that um, need to be addressed with Lifeline, both in um, the delivery and then also in terms of making sure that people are even aware that the program exists. So as an immediate solution, I do think that we should support the Lifeline program because it is in place. It is something that ensures baseline connectivity and gives uh, people that are not only low income, but also in emergency uh, situations, access to broadband. And especially for um, uh, households that are newly unemployed, um, who might not really know how they're going to pay their bills, uh, broadband will often be one of those bills that's cut, and it's a problem because then they can't even access the other services that they need. Uh, in terms of mm, the larger mm-hmm. issue about how we structure the funding, I think that that goes back to we need to really think about some sort of matrix to be supporting not only communities, but really thinking about how do we filter that through states that can say, you know, um, how they're going to assess how communities are in need. I think that in some states, um, they're going to be struggling with geography. And so broadband is going to be expensive to wire every single home. So they're going to have solutions than if you were looking at a state like New Jersey where the houses are all closer together. And so they might have adoption issues versus access. And so I do think that states based on population should have access to funding to say, We have communities that need different types of support and for states to be able to determine what type of support that they need. Idaho just opened their grant funding um, process where communities can apply to say we need help to either upgrade, to start new networks, you know, whatever it is that you need. So I do think that there's value in that and especially saying that if you've already qualified for one federal program, that that should just be enough of a benchmark to say, okay, then you qualify for the other. Because obviously if you qualify for SNAP, um, you probably need a little bit of help with your broadband as well. And so really thinking about where we can kind of tap into, we've already solved that issue about determining who should be eligible in terms of who's low income. So let's tap into the networks of other government programs where they've already decided who's eligible and assess whether or not, okay, is that adequate? And then also thinking about the adoption piece, because like you mentioned at the beginning of our interview, a lot of this funding is not supporting adoption. And funding states to be able to make those decisions could change that. And so I think that there has to be some sort of, you know, uh, really, I feel like intentional thinking and partnerships around thinking about how are we going to determine how much money is needed, and then also how are we going to filter it through some sort of clearinghouse, whether it's saying people can apply for grants, Um, across the country or and maybe the government partners with philanthropic institutions who think you know what we want to get behind this problem too or is it something that we should filter through states and also leverage some of those partnerships 
that states have with corporate residents. So the thing is, you're more likely to get, um, you know, a company like, for example, uh, Nike is based in Portland. And so the thing is, that'd be great to partner with Nike <laughs> if you're in the state of Portland to say, how can we solve this issue together? It would probably be more effective than somebody reaching out to them from Washington, D.C. So the thing is, mm -hmm. it's important to be able to partner with corporate residents to say, we're able to make a local impact to keep this in a local economy and to be able to solve a problem that we can all see in front of us. But I think, honestly, mm -hmm. all of this comes back to there being an actual political will to get behind solving this problem. Because we can talk about it all day long as, as theoretical, but are we talking about we need to be able to fund it, diagnose it, get behind it immediately, not five years from now, not 10 years from now in some large broadband plan, but this is an immediate priority right now. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the things I, uh, you know, bringing these discussions out here, um, there's a lot of um, bills related to broadband. I mean, it's like eight, nine. It, it just really, I mean, it's good, right? Because there's obviously a lot of different ideas. But have any of these um, ideas or bills uh, that you've seen, um, do you have any, any, I don't know, does you do you think it's like really good? Have you seen something that's really good that's being proposed uh, or something that'll be very, very effective? I mean, what's, what's your take on these potentials we have from the Congress? So because of our lobbying restrictions, I'm going to stay away from actually endorsing the bill in particular. Um, and like right, I don't want that. I just want to know what you thought was a good them. idea that you thought was a good idea. Yeah. There are several good ideas that are coming out of them, and I think that one thing is I'm glad to see more conversations about uh, uh, including tribal communities, really thinking about that. I'm glad to see adoption mm -hmm. has been um, one of the other issues that I have not seen in previous um, bills. Like when I used to look at, you know, when I think about legislation that I might have seen three years ago, uh, more often mm -hmm. I will see conversations about we need to partner with anchor institutions in communities to be able to make. Um, I think that when we're talking about being able to really honestly diagnose this problem, um, I am wholeheartedly behind all of the broadband data initiatives. Um, so there are several bills, um, one large bill that did go through the Broadband Data Act. So that's something that there's, you know, universal agreement that we need to be able to improve the data. And so I feel like there's no way for us to um, really acknowledge, like, what states, what cities, what communities really need help without being able to take a more granular look. Um, and I think that when we're thinking about what makes for good legislation, uh, I think that we need to think about not just funding things through the Universal Service Fund or through the traditional uh, vehicles. I think that we need to be able to fund directly to states and municipalities that are ready to deploy solutions because mm -hmm. sometimes we end up adding some financial barriers to getting money out the door, and it ends up – it starts with good intentions and ends up being a miss in application. And so I think mm -hmm. that we need to really think about this with a certain type of urgency because, um, as you've mentioned, and even when I read your work, when we're talking about how this impacts um, not just education or economics, but also how it impacts health. When we're in the middle of mm -hmm. a national emergency that might be ongoing for the rest of the year, I mean, who knows how long we're going to be in a state of I'm not so sure, 
We need to have online learning options. We need to be able to work from home. Like, we need to be able to have those alternatives in place right now. So us talking about good ideas, if, if we're not able to implement them for another two or three years, we have real problems. What's the use? <laughs> and I think that it, yeah, it's just not enough for us to talk about it in theory. I want to see us get money out the door to the communities that need it the most. Mm-hmm. So we've got about four minutes. I wanted to ask a question. And this, this relates to an interview that we did uh, last year. But this idea I'm nervous. of having. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is that, I guess. No, the idea of ambassadors. You had this idea that there should oh. be someone in the community who uh, basically yeah. gets behind different projects. And uh, because of their standing or their status within the community, they become the, the folks that will get better adoption. Um, in two minutes, yes. what do you feel? I vaguely feel- remember. Okay, so I, I think the context of when that came up was when we were talking about why uh, certain communities uh, or certain households were reluctant to adopt. And, I, yes, I, you know, it exactly. frustrates me when I read – certain op-eds that say the reason why adoption is low in, you know, communities of color or in certain households is because they don't understand the technology. And at the time, what I don't think occurred to people who were writing these articles is that if you are in a household where you are an immigrant family, maybe you're a mixed status family, um, we know that adoption rates drop precipitously in families where the, uh, they live in non-English speaking households. We have people who have left places where they are inherently suspicious of the government. And so they're mm, not going to bring mm-hmm. tools of surveillance into their home. And into so the house, that exactly. is what triggers a need to have people who are trusted ambassadors to not only show the benefits of that technology, but to show why we can, how we can use it safely. And even mm-hmm. when I think about that concept now, I think about it in a broader sense about who are we bringing into these conversations to then go and have conversations in their communities. And in Washington, D.C., it is usually a very small group of tech advocates who uh, shape policy, who speak up for uh, populations who don't necessarily have agency or the resources to speak in policy circles here with lawmakers and regulators. And very often, I think about the fact that what if we were to actually arm people with information, plain language, so that they can translate in their own words, this is what we need mm-hmm. in our And I think that as gotcha. long as we keep it something that's exclusive, you're going to have the same people coming up with the same solutions. If we can find a way to deputize ordinary people in their communities with this is the language, this is the, these are our funding needs, this is what our community wants to solve this problem, we're going to be way better off. Gotcha. And that pretty much wraps up our show for today. I thank you very, very much for being here. And, um, and I look forward to, um, you know, working with you and your group uh, in, in the future. So, um, I can't yeah. thank you enough for doing this work and just for spreading awareness. No worries. No worries. And to my audience, thank you again for uh, listening in. Uh, We'll be back again next week. So let's have a great uh, rest of your week and weekend, and we'll see you again next week. Take care. Thanks again, Craig. Bye. Bye.